Activia offers a range of yogurts which are a delicious way to look after your gut health. From the fruit range with carefully selected ingredients to no added sugar and 0% fat offering, as well as a cereals range, there's an Activia for everyone. Made with a unique blend of five ferments creating an irresistibly creamy texture, each pot of Activia is a source of calcium, making it the perfect addition to your daily routine. Activia helps support a healthy gut. Your gut is where it all begins. Some listeners may be affected by some of the issues raised on today's show. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry. Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Folks, this week we're discussing eating disorders, what they are and how they impact the health of someone who suffers from them. Reports last year said that during the pandemic, the rate of eating disorders has significantly increased since 2020. Figures from the National Clinical Programme for Eating Disorders show there was a 66% increase in referrals in 2020. Eating disorders are complex and impact both the mental and physical health of the person who has one. So when someone gets the help they need, it's from a team of people with very different expertise. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Avian Bannon, dietitian with the Dublin Nutrition Centre, who specialises in eating disorders. Tell us more about them and her role in the treatment. Avian, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm looking forward to this. I think it's a really important topic uh, that isn't spoken about enough. And I think, you know, before we get into it, it is really important to say that if someone has an eating disorder, it's a multidisciplinary approach to someone who has it. And that is important to say, isn't it? It is. It's one of those things as well. I think, you know, like your first protocol might be your GP. Sometimes you might go straight to a psychologist or you might go straight to a dietitian. The first thing is make make one appointment. You know, it might feel very overwhelming if you feel you just suddenly go, oh my goodness, I have to do all of this. Just make one protocol and once, you know, the journey starts, it can be a little bit scary at the beginning, but it will be worth it. Um, and to know that there's no judgment. No one's judging you. People just want to help you. Everyone who works in this area has huge empathy for anyone going through anything like this. So, you know, their main role is to try and help you on that kind of road to recovery. And there are different types of eating disorders. What characterizes uh, one? That's important to start with, I think. There's loads. And actually, it's really important to point that out because people tend to just think of, say, anorexia, for example, where we have like anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. We have ARFID, which is a avoidant food restrictive intake disorder. There is OFSED, which historically was called EDNOS, which was eating disorder non-specified. And it's kind of one where it's, you're kind of slightly maybe not quite fitting the complete diagnosis of anorexia or a binge eating disorder or bulimia is probably the most common but still just as serious um there's orthorexia which is a fixation on her healthy eating and kind of being really really particular about the quality of her calories so it's quite a broad spectrum and it's not one size fits all and it's really important to point out you don't have to be underweight to have or have a low bmi to have an eating disorder you know bmi is only one factor of it there's all sorts of things from, you know, your relationship with food, your relationship with your body, how you think about your body, how you feel about your body and control, you know, feeling it's kind of almost like a, a destructive coping mechanism is probably the way to describe it. And it's how, you know, explain the increase over the course of the pandemic in people being referred for mm. eating disorders. It's that control when things are out of your control, such as a global pandemic, you focus on things that you can control. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that, Carl, because I feel like the increase was coming before COVID. OK, there was definitely a big increase. I think 
you know, COVID possibly, you know, added a bit of more to it. But I, I think there was other aspects. To it. Obviously, with the isolation was a huge factor and the change of lack of routine and structure, and as you say, a feeling of not feeling control. But I actually think on the other side, I think everyone home together, a lot of families and parents picked up on behaviours among their teens and their kids that they might have mightn't have seen if they were in school. So I think, yes, it probably caused a wee bit of an increase, but I think that increase was coming from beforehand. And now it's more like a tsunami of trying to, you know, catch who you can, try and help who you can. But it's, uh, there's a lots of different factors. You know, you've got the social media side, you've got the kind of people, maybe the over-exercise, and you've got the body dissatisfaction. You've got even what we've been taught in the curriculum in school. And some of those messages are very black and white about food. So there's so many different influences that um, that coupled with, yes, the pandemic definitely didn't help. And I was going to ask you that in terms of, you know, but prior to COVID, what's causing that increase and generating that increase and in social media, presumably in people's usage of it, the quantity of platforms that are available. It's a factor. Yeah, it's part of it. Yeah, um, it is. And you think, I suppose, you know, when they look at us, they say like girls tend to be more of a trigger for girls tends to be comparison. So that would be comparing themselves each to the, the, to the previous pictures of themselves or to a, you know, a sibling or to friends or to their peers or someone they admire. Whereas for boys, it can tend to be a little bit more to do with bullying, an episode of bullying or commenting about weight or something like that. So there tends to be slightly different factors that can impact from that aspect, from the social aspect. But it's, you know, exercise is another one that it's like, um, you know, when you kind of get, you'll have come across this before with like the dysfunctional exercise. So obviously we all want people to be active, but when it becomes dysfunctional, it becomes like, I have to, I need to. And it quite often can be something that's at the start of an eating disorder. And then at the end, it can kind of, you know, be one thing that's very much apparent. Um, up to 81% of people with eating disorders will partake in dysfunctional exercise. So sometimes that's something that a parent mightn't have noticed, say, before because they're eating okay, but they didn't realize how much they were like this having to go for a run every day. Like I have to. And if I don't, something bad will happen. So there's kind of it's interesting to talk about, like, you know, exercise is good. When does it become dysfunctional or like disordered eating? We all do a bit of disordered eating like that's normal. But when does it become an eating disorder? And the kind of common thread in there would probably be compulsion when it becomes a compulsion to do it, a compulsion that, that you have to do it and something will happen if you don't or you'll feel the guilt or feel lack of control if you don't do it. So compulsion is the one thing that kind of, you know, differentiates between normal exercise and dysfunction or disordered eating and an eating disorder, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It's something yeah. that we would like, you know, 22 years doing what I do, I... Uh... I would have dealt with a couple of cases of mm. eating disorders over the course of just dealing with clients and looking out for certain triggers, looking out for, you know, when you're chatting to them in terms of how they, they talk about exercise and how they talk about food. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's, a, it, it's exactly, you know, it, it's, it's frightening. You know, mm. And when you see it happen, uh, it's frightening to watch it happen too, yeah. you know, um, in terms of what, from what you see, is there, is there one particular form that is more common than the other, or is that a myth? Um, well, like if you look at the numbers, the offset, what I was saying, that would probably be the most common, probably followed by kind of anorexia. And then you get your bulimia and binge eating disorder. And we don't really have as many kind of updated figures in Arford and orthorexia and things like that. We kind of have figures in the others. Um, we see like anorexia would tend to be more common, say, like more common that the average presentation between the age of 14 and 18 
whereas bulimia might be more kind of like later teens to early 20s along with binge eating so you'll see the presentations at different times but most of what we see like only you think it's something like only 15 percent actually seek help like it's quite a low number where people will actually seek help and sometimes it will be a case of you know a family member kind of going you know bringing them along and trying to help get that but sometimes people you know one of the most common things we hear is people they don't think they're sick enough you know they don't think they're sick enough or that someone else is sicker or like this kind of belief that they're they're not that bad or you know kind of the worry that if they do deal with this that they'll lose all sense of control altogether so it's an interesting like what I see most of would probably be kind of restrictive eating pattern would be the most I would see and I would see arthritis I see orthorexia um I'd see like binge eating disorder and bulimia and but restrictive eating would 100% probably be my most common one that I see okay and chat me through the difference between just for mm-hmm. our listeners between anorexia and bulimia the difference between so, the two like anorexia nervosa would be the kind of restrictive eating so like you'll see like kind of low intakes coupled with you know you'll get loss of physical impact of that whether it's low body weight heart rate blood pressure issues um and they'll be quite sick and very kind of uh, rigid thinking and bulimia in the mimosa would be where there may be episodes of binging and then kind of and purging behavior so whether it's lactic abuse or, or vomiting or something like that so they can be a little bit now sometimes they like they, they they do overlap a little bit sometimes for some people as well and then binge eating disorder might be more like that kind of binging behavior but it's not followed on by a purge behavior on top of it so you'll have different things and that's where the offset comes in which is like the kind of um a feeding or kind of eating kind of like a disorder but it's not quite falling into the black and white pattern of the others because there's elements of them if you know what I mean so it might be somebody who's restrictive eating but their BMI isn't very very low or it might be somebody who's purging but they're not doing it on that regular basis but they still do it so it kind of the behavior is still there okay um would behaviors like that be associated with people if they're following you know an incredibly strict diet regime where they're fixated upon the foods they can eat the foods they can't see you know what is that potentially where things like this may begin yeah like there's a real kind of uh, phrase we use is like not all diets cause eating disorders but all eating disorders start with a diet so it's one of those things like it can be a diet, whether it I mean, it can be something someone deciding I'm going to become a pescatarian for a round and then they just get really fixated on it and it escalates. Or it could be somebody who's been put on a diet for medical reasons, like for diabetes or celiac or something, and then they become overthinking about it. Or it can be someone who decides they want to lose weight or they want to eat healthier, but they become a little bit over fixated on it. And then they get into this very much good versus bad kind of black and white thinking. So you know, the, like eating, it, it, they do follow the kind of trends you'll see. So, you know, the way like you're of a similar vintage to myself, Carl. So we grew up in the whole low fat era where everything was low fat. And then like fat was like the worst thing in the world. And now it's like sugar. So you'll see that those trends like sugar fear is a huge one. Terrified people, terrified of sugar, reading labels, you know, looking at every little amount they might have. So definitely you'll see that kind of that diet idea where it becomes very fixated and it will start with something like that. It will start with the sugar on the label or the fats or something along those lines. And then suddenly as well, I won't eat any sugar. And then it's like, oh, I need to, how are you cooking that food? Or like, what are you putting into it? And then the the kind of controlling behaviors start to escalate. 
Okay. And in terms of from your own perspective, obviously, you know, if someone has an eating disorder, they go to their GP, they maybe go yeah. to body wise and that starts the conversation. It's a multidisciplinary approach in terms of mental mm. health and physical health. From a dietitian's perspective, chat us through your own role in helping somebody. So it depends where they where they are in their journey. So, you know, there's usually like if someone's very malnourished, um, you know, the, the first role is to try and help get them to some degree of nourishment because if you're very malnourished it's really hard to engage in therapy sometimes so you're trying to get the balance between the two what we do is we kind of go okay so we work on trying to kind of get that relationship back with food get that trust back with food so when we meet people like they really are they're they're afraid of calories they're they may be may not be about calories it might be about a food group or it might be about the way a food is prepared or there are all these different things but trying to help get that kind of balance back and we would really work on nutritional education so it'll be working on like the roles of the different nutrients in the body so you know you're nervous of carbohydrates but like this is why we need them you know and it's you know yes we don't want people to eat loads and loads of them but we don't want people to not eat them either it's not like black and white so we'd really work very much on working on like nourishing and replenishing and restoring and restoring bone health and muscle health and kind of getting the physicality the physical health back but at the same time with the individual learning to trust food again and maybe even enjoy food again and have a little bit of a sense of freedom so there's different kind of phases like phase one is usually might be a hospitalization for example or a very intense kind of monitoring phase two might be where a parent is kind of more kind of taking over control of the food at home and phase three then is you know them trying to to manage it on their own so it's done in a kind of a supportive way but very much it has to be a mutual relationship you know like I have to trust them and they have to trust me which when somebody first meets a dietitian like they they're terrified because <laughs> they just think you're going to tell them to eat loads of food and you're going to make them put on loads of weight and like that's not what we want to do is try and help them get back that relationship with with food again okay Folks, you listen to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. We're having a fascinating chat with Avian Bannon all around eating disorders. So I suppose one of the key words that, that jumps out there is balance. That, mm. you know, no matter what stage of, of an eating disorder you are at, one of the goals yeah. is to return to a balanced approach to, ment- you know, to, to physical and eating health. Yeah, it, it does. And it, it comes, unfortunately, this is where we're kind of talking about the, like, the different things that are what's causing such an increase in eating disorders. But a lot of it is these messages of good versus bad, or this is good for me, this is bad for me, I have to, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we're trying to really help people go, okay, like the 80-20 approach is like the ultimate goal of health, you know, working towards that you have, you know, you enjoy life, but you're healthy, whatever, 80% of the time. Um, It's trying to help get people that, you know, yes, okay, let's not talk about sugar. We say, yes, we're not going to ever ask people to eat loads and loads of sugar, but some sugar is okay. We're not, you know, it's trying to help get that balance with it. And I suppose I often think like I'm really fortunate as a dietitian that I'm really relaxed about food because I probably understand it better and I don't, I don't fear it as much. Um, you know, you're in the same position too. Like you've got a great relationship with exercise. You enjoy it. You love it. But you know that it's not the end of the world if you miss training for a couple of days. So it's nice to have that kind of balance with things and just be able to do things, enjoy them and not overthink it, not worry about what's on the menu, not worry about how someone's prepared something and and not have your self-worth based on how you look. Like body dissatisfaction is probably the most potent risk factor for eating disorders, particularly bulimia and binge eating disorder. That kind of body dissatisfaction 
element of, of it. And that's again coming from these personas of the perfect body or what, you know, you're either like this or you're not, the black and white kind of feeling. So it is like it's boring saying balance, but it's it's true. It's <laughs> it's a reality. And chat to me around kind of men versus women in terms mm. of those who are affected by eating disorders. I suppose there's probably a, a, a perception that it's, it's more women than men. Uh, I would think. And, yeah, know, is, the, is that the case, or 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 what? What, what do you see on the ground? Um, like there probably is a little bit more women than men, but I mean that's not to say it doesn't affect men. We definitely will see men in our clinic who struggle with it. Um, and I'll see men who struggle with anything, you know, with anorexia or binge eating disorder or that. And I think for a man sometimes it's quite hard because it is perceived a little bit more female dominant, and it can feel like getting help is a little bit more difficult for them. So it's one of those ones that, you know, we're learning that it's quite common. And we'll see this in kids, even age 10 to 11 now, you'll see girls and boys, they'll have a complete fear of being overweight. There was actually like one research in, in the US, you're like that 81% of 10 year olds were worried about being fat in the future. So not about their weight now, but about being fat in the future. So like, that's a little fear that's been kind of in there from a young age. So you know, I think as time goes on, we'll start to see more in kind of boys. We see a lot of body dysmorphia in boys where, you know, they come and they want to be bigger. They want to be stronger. They're trying to build muscle faster and their fixation with a certain type of diet can become quite unhealthy. So it's not falling into your bracket of your, you know, kind of typical eating disorders, but it's definitely uh a disordered way with food and it can become quite obsessive as well so definitely with boys I think that's probably my suspicion is that I was saying it's only a small percentage of people look for help help I say a very very small percentage of men look for help and it's also I suppose, mm. on a personal level like you know the the and from an exercise perspective anyway mm. my approach to exercise would have changed over different periods of my life so from certain mm. disorders when I was doing Ironmans ultra marathons uh, all of that and on question look back at it now and you know it was it, 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 it had red flags everywhere uh, <laughs> but so my, my point is that it you know it can change over the course of the life cycle I suppose mm. it's the point that I'm trying to make, both in terms of disordered eating and disordered movement, yeah. uh, in terms of how you mature to deal with the potential stresses that are causing it. Yeah, and I think, I suppose, as you get older as well, sometimes you may be a little bit more content with your life or your body or your, you know, you you maybe don't assign as much of your self-worth to how you look. Now, that being said, obviously, eating disorders can happen at any ages, but definitely I feel yeah I like look at myself and I'd be much less worried about how I look at a certain situation than I would have been when I was in my 20s or you know younger so it's definitely something that we've been through the journey like we've been through you know when we were in school like I don't know if anybody in my school ever had an eating disorder whereas now there are cases in probably every school you know, in every secondary school. So it's something that there's a big change that none of us are really used to because none of us went through it. Um, you know, when we were in school, it was, you know, everyone had a sandwich for lunch. Whereas, you know, you look at, um, if you look at a kind of a third year group, just for example, second year, third year group of girls or guys, you'll get like maybe 20% of them having a sandwich for lunch. You'll get it maybe a, a, like another group who are eating very little and then you'll get other ones who are just bringing in sweets to school 
Whereas back when we were in school, everyone just had their, you know, their ham sandwich. <laughs> That's what you had. And you'll see that like all the girls in the IC and the guys will tell me that, you know, I'm the only one in my class who has a wrap for lunch or a sandwich. You know, there's a lot of messing with food, be it restrictive or eating kind of unhealthier food choices. So there's there's an issue within that kind of cohort where we're missing the the, the kind of the balance factor. And does that come from the avail- the availability of sources of information where, you know, back when I was in school like that, mm-hmm. I went to school with a couple, my mum had a coffee shop, so I went to school with a couple of sandwiches, bag of popcorn, a yop, piece of fruit and something else. Uh, where, United where, where, Bar. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it was, yeah. you know, it was all very basic penguin, stuff. Penguin, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah, penguin. Uh, love a good penguin bar. Yeah. Uh, so, but when I, you know, so when I was like, you know, 15, 16, 17, like that in school, training for the rugby team, all of that. Uh, your knowledge around and where you get your knowledge from was very narrow. So it was through yeah. verbal, it might be through your parents, it might be through a, mm. a peer group, or now it's through Google, it's through Instagram, it's through the, the, so, the, the sort, the availability yeah. of information is huge. And I mean, I'll tell you, Carl, in the junior cycle, SPHE, SPHE, that subject, I don't know yeah. what it is, um, book, there is a little square that says to burn off the calories in an apple, you need to walk a mile to burn off the calories in an apple. In the book. In the book, right. Because I had it for my daughter's junior cycle. I have the picture. I took a picture of it and I did a presentation to school principals. And I was like, that's currently in the books. So, you know, if you're getting that, like imagine a 14-year-old girl sitting there going, I just had an apple at little break and now I'm sitting here and I'm not walking a mile. Like, you know how that disconnect, like not realizing my body's burning calories all the time. So if there's messages coming from like even our curriculum, coupled with social media, coupled with, whatever you know people always say oh it must be at home usually homes a perfectly healthy family dinner is everything is fine it's the influence coming from so many other sources so it is very different like that that there's kind of information that can be a little bit misleading or kind of a little bit extremist maybe I don't know which way kind of the right way to verbalize it is but it can be hard and I, I suppose it's probably on the same on the on the same line that you know in terms of uh, triggers for people who have eating disorders, it's a mm. huge net in terms of where those triggers can come from in terms of media, in terms of social media, in terms of television, radio, mm. uh, the, the, the you know the, the range at which and versus again prior to the the, the change of communication that we have now and, and so. You know, the, the, literally the triggers, if you are susceptible to one, they're all around, you know, literally everywhere you they look are. in terms of your phone or your what you read or whatever, you know. And even if we like go back to COVID, you know, like, do you remember like schools like were brilliant? They were like, OK, we're going to send out like an exercise plan for the hockey team. And then we'll send out one for the I know, the basketball team and the rugby team and whatever else. But the problem is then you've got like, a child who's susceptible who maybe was on three or four teams getting plans from three or four. And then that's the type of child who goes, well, I, I have to do it because... This is what I've been told to do. So sometimes the the um, influence is so innocent and so kind of in the right way. And it's just how it's interpreted by that child. And you, everyone knows their own kid. So you know your kid who is that kind of very, you know, would fixate on things and like to do things. And you know the trends or you know if your kid is the one who withdraws or you, like the food's gone, like, or, you know, always in the treat cupboard like you know your own kids so you know them best and how to help support them and the most important thing is just in that whole lesson home is never demonizing food you know 
trying to encourage conversation or, you know, kind of encourage that if they come back and say, oh, that's really bad for you. They're like, well, no, there's no thing as a good or bad food, like on your good or bad diet or, you know, trying to get that balance, like never referring to sweets as being rubbish or like it's trying to help the language be positive at home because unfortunately there is so much external influences for them and messages I'll be told. I mean, I know mine come home, it's like, oh, mum, if you heard what we were told today, you won't be happy. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't tell me. Yeah. And, and chat me through, in, uh, if someone's listening in who thinks they may have an eating disorder mm-hmm. or they have a loved one who has an eating disorder, where do they go? What do they do? So presumably GP is the first port of call. Yeah, and body, like, you know, go online and look at BodyWise. Like, they've got really loads of information there and they've got an amazing support helpline there. So, you know, look at that go to your gp you know if you're feel like you don't know your gp that very not that well you might you know like maybe go to a loved one and or a friend or talk to them and share that with them and then they might go with you you know just if you don't feel confident enough to go in and in that kind of you know 10 15 minutes say everything or you might write it down and give it to them and you know kind of do whatever makes it easier for yourself it's good to try and find a support to help you on that journey um you know, often when we meet people, you know, they'll they'll send a little email first just saying, listen, this is my story. You know, do you think you can help me? And then you can kind of help support from that, because usually, as I said, people are very nervous coming in to see a dietitian. Anyway, the first time I said they would also might be nervous going in to see their GP or a psychologist. Like it's a big thing to do. So body wise is great to look at supports from that. It is beat in the UK as well, which is really, really good. And there's different kind of ways. If you're on Instagram or looking for something, always make sure that if you're looking at advice from say a dietitian, like that they are a dietitian, that they're an RD, like they're registered and that they're kind of working that area. Or like if you're nervous about if you think you might have an eating disorder, like you know, you're you're don't go looking at dietitians who work with people with diabetes who are helping people type two diabetes. So that's you know, because they're not going to be the right messages for you. So usually I'd say is try and find a little bit of support, possibly from a body wise place, and then you know, chat to your GP or bring someone with you to help support you with that. And, and, and try and of not course, to be too afraid. Yeah. Yeah, if, if you know, if you're afraid of talking about it, like you were saying there, uh, the the written word or the typed mm. word in the world that we live in, yeah. uh, <laughs> is an easier way to express your emotions, to express your feelings, to express mm. the issues that you're having. So potentially, if you are listening in, and you're afraid to talk it out with somebody. Potentially, just type it and yeah. send that email off because sometimes it's an easier place for people to express emotions and to express issues. And it means you don't, you know, they have the information there. You don't feel you have to go in and give your whole life story it's there you know start from the basics and also bear in mind that you know people who work in the area we tend to be quite passionate about it we really like really want to help people and everybody you know we've all worked with people who have these issues before so we're not going to be shocked or you know react or judge or do anything like that and we're not going to force you into doing things you don't want to do we're going to try and work with you so I think that's really important as well because the, the shame that can come for people with eating disorders, sometimes they feel quite embarrassed, maybe talking about things or some of the side effects that they might have. If people did want to contact you, where can they get you? 
And well, Dublin Nutrition Centre is the best part there. We have a few of us now who work with eating disorders in there. So Dublin Nutrition Centre would be kind of where you get to see one of us or... um, and then the other one I'd look at would be body wise. So, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say that. So, folks, if you mm-hmm. have been affected by anything myself and Avian have chatted about, do uh, visit bodywise.ie for more information. That's it for another episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. As ever, we will see you next week. You know where we are at Carl Henry PT on Instagram and Real Health at independent.ie. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have a concern with someone who may have an eating disorder, potentially this could be a nice thing to send on to them to open up the conversation and stay safe and we'll see you very soon it's long before Leia Healthcare looking after you always proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry